Okay, so Numbers chapter uh, 12. Now, when it comes to um, contemporary culture today, um, contemporary culture, there's a whole host of trilogies, trilogies, aren't there, that kind of span the various genre of art form. Trilogies. As soon as I say that word to you, right, certain things maybe spring to mind. Trilogies. In literature, where would you go? In literature, you maybe got the Lord of the Rings books. Maybe that floats your boat. In music, you've got, what would you go for? Maybe Tom Waits' Alan Years trilogies. In film, you've got all manner of trilogies you could choose from, don't you? But of course, it would be the Back to the Future films that you think of first. Okay, trilogies, trilogies, uh, trilogies. Well, as we work our way through the Book of Numbers, perhaps you have clocked on to the fact that at this point in time, we're actually in the midst of a trilogy of our own. Have you noticed that? Have you thought about that? We're in the midst of a trilogy. Because in chapters 11 and 12, we're faced with three cycles of complaint. Have you picked up on that? Three accounts of grumbling and complaining before the Lord. Well, having considered the first two of those sections last week, do you remember last week in chapter 11, do you remember we had this short section and then we had the longer section? So having considered the first two cycles of complaint, today we come to the third installment of the trilogy. Okay, hopefully not the sermon equivalent of the Godfather part three, but a section of scripture here that though it does share some terminology and certain themes with with what's come before, this is a section that's very different in its dynamics this morning, and it's a section that differs in its core sin. So, third installment of the trilogy. Let's have this portion of scripture open in front of us. As we consider, first of all, first thing for us to think about this morning is a great sin. Okay, that's the first thing, a great sin. Now, uh, given what I've just said, I suppose the temptation might be for us to sort of think or assume that today's just going to be much, much of the same. You know, the, the idea that this sermon is just going to be under that theme of grumbling and complaining. It's just going to be another, and very similar to last week. That might be the temptation. That would not be nuanced enough at all. So this is what I want us to do. We're going to take Numbers 12, and we're going to inspect it under the micro- microscope. Okay? So have a look at it. What do we see under the microscope just now? So what's the first thing that you probably notice are the culprits in Numbers 12, do you? If you look at verse 1, what personalities are we dealing Who are we dealing with? Do you see? So we've got, who is it? It's Miriam, Aaron. We know who they are, do we? Miriam and Aaron. So that's the brother and sister. That's the older siblings of Moses himself. We, we knew that, didn't we? So we've got the, kind of, the culprits of the personalities here. But then, what of the crime? What's the sin? Don't you think it's quite interesting to note that there's actually two complaints that are leveled here. Two complaints. You see, there's one in verse 1, and then there's a second complaint in verse 2. Do you notice that? Now, although I'm going to suggest to you that you see that first complaint as maybe what we would call a smokescreen. 
So I'm, I'm saying the first complaint really isn't the heart of the issue here at all. We're going to see that in a minute. Although that is the case, it's still recorded by God. So I think it's worthy of note for us. So make sure everyone, those people at home, make sure you see it in verse 1. What's Miriam? What's Miriam and Aaron? What are they grumbling about? Do you see it? They're grumbling. Ah, Moses, he's married. He's married a Cushite woman. So, what, what's the issue, right? What, what's the problem? Well, I think it could be that, could be maybe that this is Moses' first wife, Zipporah, that's in view. After all, um, we learn in Exodus that she was a Midianite, and that's a people group that in Scripture is very often linked with Cushite, the, the area of Cush in southern Ethiopia, right? So it, it could be her, it could be Zira, but the problem is she's not mentioned, and Moses married her ages before this. So I'm going to suggest to you that I don't think it is Zipporah at all. I'm going to suggest to you, along with probably most other people, that what's happened is Zipporah's died, and Moses has married again. And can I ask you, do you see what's going on, the dynamics here? It's something that I think is actually quite relevant to us, a diverse congregation like ours. There's ethnic prejudice going on. Does it sound familiar to some in the congregation? A family complaining, mourning that a member of their family is, is going to marry a, a different ethnicity. You have to understand as well that Moses was permitted to marry a Cushite. This was not unlawful so long as this Cushite was willing to worship and truly worship Yahweh, worship the, the Lord God. But you see it? Miriam Aaron didn't like this at all. Like they don't like, but she's different to us. She's a different ethnicity to us. And can I also suggest to you, this might be racial. They don't like perhaps the fact that this woman has got darker skin that Cushites were famous for at the time. And they are grumbling and they're complaining. And look at it in verse one. They're not complaining to Moses. They're complaining against him. They're complaining about about the situation. So we've got the first complaint, do we? This ethnic prejudice that's going on. But what did I say a second ago? I said that's this is a smokescreen, I reckon. This is this is not the heart of the issue. So you need to, you need to look at verse two with me. So have a look. See, get verse two. What's what's going on here? So they say, they say next, ah, has the Lord spoken? Only through Moses? Has he not also spoken through us? Has he not spoken through us also? Now, I think to appreciate what's going on here, you and I need to, just for a second, we need to refocus on the personalities, the people we're dealing with, okay? So, it's like going back to those Zoom calls, isn't it, that we had before Christmas, you know, the social Zoom calls. It's like quiz question. Who's Miriam? Who's Aaron? Okay, come on, work with me. You can say back, bro, you've dealt with that man. You know, that's a brother and sister of, of Aaron. Ah, come on. Pushing it a wee bit more, though. Who's Miriam and who's Aaron? Now, we know, don't we, that both of them had a prominent role in the spiritual life of Israel, didn't they? Who's Miriam? Miriam was a prophetess, wasn't she? 
You know, she was one of the leading spiritual women in, in Exodus chapter 15. That's Miriam, prophetess. Who's Aaron? Come on. What role did Aaron have? Aaron was the very high priest of Israel himself. When you gather those little bits of information around, do you not see what's going on here? Do you not see the core sin in Numbers chapter 12? What is it? Miriam and Aaron were jealous of Moses, weren't they? These were people who were absolutely envious of him. Miriam and Aaron, they're looking at Moses' relationship with God. The intimacy and how he's used. I think more than that as well. They're looking at Moses and the recognition that he gets from all of the people, all the attention Moses is getting. And Miriam and Aaron, they hate it. They're loathing this. Their hearts are filled with envy, with bitterness to this man. Filled with hate. Now, last week, were you here last week? Did you tune in last week? If so, you'll remember that we looked at grumbling, we looked at complaining. Here's what I think happened for many of us, myself included. We came away from Numbers chapters, chapter 11, rebuked and convicted. Why? Because as we looked at those people in the wilderness, we saw ourselves, didn't we? We saw our grumbling hearts, our complaining hearts. Well, I surely want to suggest to you that the same ought to be happening just now. Because if you're honest with yourself and you examine your life at this moment, what do you see? In this season of life, can you not identify areas where jealousy shows its ugly head? Areas of your life where you're coveting what your neighbor has. Areas where you are envious. Is that not the case? Children of all ages connected to this congregation. Jealous of their classmates, of their grades, of their gadgets, right? Women in the congregation, jealous of other women, their uh, abilities, home, guys, in a congregation, jealous of your neighbor's cash, car, their career, single people in the congregation, perhaps slightly envious sometimes of married people, married people, sometimes perhaps slightly envious of single people. Maybe all of us looking around, jealous of other people's spiritual gifts or jealous of other people's spiritual contentment. Parents in the congregation jealous of the professions of faith that they see and hear from other people's kids. I could be here all day. Now given the the relevance and the prevalence of the sin of jealousy and envy in our hearts, what I want to do just now is I want to lay out before you four ways of combating jealousy in the Christian life. Four strategies that we can take into fighting against envious hearts, okay? And I want to be as ambitious as we can be this morning. So what I want to do is set up before you an acronym just now. You're with me, right? So four applications that will spell out the word envy, (laughs) So that we might remember this. Okay, so what do we do, Christian friends? 
When in our life, this week, next week, we recognize, wait, I am coveting that. I am envious. What do we do? You ready for these? First, E. We need to embrace reality. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. And when I was in ministry in Scotland, so that's gone back a few years now, probably over uh, 10 years, certainly over 10 years ago, when I went into that job, one of the first things that really, really struck me was how everyone has problems. And we talk about that a little bit. I don't think we appreciate it quite as much as we ought to. That everyone in the church and in the community that I was in, everyone had hidden struggles and hidden issues. You know, bubbling under the surface, behind closed doors. You know the sort of idea that I'm talking about? Do you not see how that ought to help us right now? Do you not see how insane it is to be jealous? You see, that person that you are envying just now, their circumstance. You see that person that you think is riding the crest of a wave and that person who has it all? That person is a mess. That person has hidden struggles that you cannot begin to imagine. Hidden struggles you know nothing about. Hidden struggles that you would never want a part of. And you need to remember that when envy shows itself. So we need to E, embrace reality then n you can see where we're going can you en we need to nurture a healthier prayer life if you were tuning in uh, last week or if you were in the room last week do you remember the question that i asked you or the question posed to you in the sermon it was i asked you when we're talking about complaining when was the last time that you really went to god and pleaded with God and confessed your grumbling spirit. Do you remember that from last week? You see surely that a similar thing needs to be posed today. Like are you sitting there this morning and recognizing, yes, I am envious. Yes, there is jealousy of others. I am coveting what other people have, their house, their life situation, their looks, their clothing, whatever it might be. Then don't you realize that is an area that you ought to make for for concerted prayer that you need to be taking that to God in in sincere prayer before him we need to embrace reality we need to nurture a healthier prayer life then the v-e-n-v we need to value the gospel more value the gospel more so i read this this week just one phrase i'm going to read it to you see what you think now i'm going to say preface it is really simple and it is not particularly profound i didn't find it from a 16th century church historian or anything like that it's just a passing phrase but you know it hit me square between the eyes and i wonder if it's going to do that the same for you this morning so listen to it very simple here's the idea listen as a christian your present circumstances they are better than you deserve. Your present circumstances are better than you deserve. How easily, how quickly we forget that as a sinful people, we are deserving of eternal punishment. How quickly that goes out of our minds. Friends, when we remember what Christ has given us, what Christ has purchased for us, doesn't it seem absolutely mental to be envying someone's fleeting gooks or their perishing bank balance. We deserve eternal punishment. And here we are as Christians receiving 
everlasting life in the Lord God. We need to value the gospel more. And then the last one. I've done what my kids do with their burgers and chips and left the best to last. Why of envy? We need to yield to the sovereignty of God. Because you know what we're like in a church like ours? We love our doctrine, right? We love our doctrine. But how often our doctrine fails to match the way that we live, or the way that we live fails to match our doctrine. We love our theology, but so often, doesn't it sit apart from our character and the way that we are living? There's this big disconnect between the two. Well, you are a reformed church, and we are proud of our reformed theology. So I ask you, what do you know as reformed Christians? You know God is sovereign. You know that God loves you. What does it tell you? It tells you, Christian friend, that your circumstances are exactly what God deems best for you just now. Your situation that you're in right now, exactly what an all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing God deems exactly the best thing for you right now in this season of your life. And when you see that, again, I repeat, isn't it crazy to be envious of anyone else? You have exactly what God wants for you right now. How crazy it would be to follow after Miriam and Aaron and to be envious, jealous of other people. Friends, what do we see in our jealousy? What do we see? We see a great sin. Okay. Secondly, much more briefly. So we've seen a great sin, have we? Second of all, we see a greater prophet a greater prophet. Because what we're doing, we're taking the text back under the microscope, aren't we? We're examining. So if we do that, can can I ask you, does the next scene in Numbers 12, not in a way, just terrify you, you know, with, you know, reverence and so forth, but isn't it a bit terrifying? Do you see what's happened in verse 5? So what happens is Miriam and Aaron, and they're complaining in the morning out of jealousy, And then in verse 5, God descends. The divine cloud of God's presence. You notice it comes down. What God does, and this is a terrifying bit, I'm sure, right? What God does, he descends and he summons the guilty parties. Miriam and Aaron summons them to stand before himself to make an appearance before him. You're not with me that their knees were, were knocking together as they have to appear in their sin before the living God. Now, what's noticeable there? They appear before God. You could say to me, what's noticeable is how God vindicates Moses straight away. Do you notice it? Immediately, he clears Moses of any wrongdoing. And that's amazing. But I think what is more striking is the description that God gives of Moses. Now, let me just pause there because I want to make sure you're with me, okay? People at home, if you're distracted, then come back in here, listen. Same at this point, because this description of Moses is the smack bang center of this portion of scripture. It is exalted. It is a beautiful description from God of his servant Moses. So what I want us to do, what I want to point out to you are three elements. So I'm going to give you three places to look in your Bible. 
three places. And I want you to remember the title that we give these, okay? Just really, really briefly. So the first place to look is to verse 3 and to think about the character, what you learn about the character of Moses. Will you look there for me? Maybe show the kids verse 3 as well. What are you told about Moses? Such a difficult idea, isn't it? Don't you think Moses was meek? And we've looked at that before. Do you remember we've looked at that before? How that is a trait that's kind of despised by the world, isn't it? But it's an attribute that God kind of holds up. Do you see the idea? Do you see what the heart of that is? Moses was humble. Isn't that it? Like a supremely, more humble than anyone else that was walking the earth at that time. And then, could I ask you, how do you recognize the humility in the chapter? Isn't it amazing that He's got his siblings accusing him, challenging him. What does Moses do? Nothing. Like he doesn't make a defense of himself here at all. Like he's just quiet, silent in the face of all that. It's amazing, really. So we've got that. Then the second place that I want you to look. So we've got the character. We're thinking Moses is a meek man. Second place, look to verse 8. And think about his access to God. So have you got verse 8? You see it? Verse 8. You can sort of lead into it if you want. Because like God declares to Miriam, to Aaron, that where he has revealed himself to other prophets and done so in dreams and visions. Who do you think about? Who do you think about God revealing in dreams and visions? Maybe Joseph, his dreams, Daniel, Isaiah's vision, and so forth. While God has done that and does that with other prophets, do you see what he says about Moses? Moses is different to that. Because Moses has beheld something of the form of God, remember from that cleft in the rock, God speaks with greater intimacy. And do you see the language? Face to face, mouth to mouth. Moses is a man who hears God's word more clearly. Amazing. So what have we got? character, access, most especially, I need you to think about the status of Moses here. Because I I looked at your sheet, if you're using your sheet, I I looked at it earlier on, I don't have a copy of it up here, but I really don't think that the ESV brings out what's going on here really well, because what I think is happening, and again, in line with most other, you know, people commenting on this chapter, What you're dealing with, what you've got in front of you is actually a divine poem. It's quite a thought, isn't it? It's a song, a divine poem that God is is speaking about Moses. Now listen, it is an 11-line poem that is structured in such a way, structured chiastically, we know what that means, that it works in the way to highlight one critical truth about Moses. And so now you want to know what that truth is, right? That God is in the center of his poem. Look at verse 7. Have you got there? This is the heart of the whole shaban, the whole thing. So God, you would say to me, God calls Moses his servant. Don't skip over that. That's really God putting Moses right up there with with David, with Abraham. Look at the next bit. That Moses is faithful in all God's house. Don't you see what God's doing for you even this morning? 
He's portraying his people as his home, his household. And he's saying of Moses that Moses, as the chief servant of that home, he does everything loyally. He's dedicated. He's devoted to his work of, of being a servant in God's house. This is incredible honor that God is bestowing on this man. Can you imagine being Miriam? Can you imagine being, being Aaron? No wonder they are rebuked. What an exalted poem to give Moses honor. Then I guess, like you and I sitting here, we're in the 21st century, we're sitting here, we're wondering, what on earth do we do with this, this description? I think there's one avenue we could go down, don't you think? Where we could put ourselves under the spotlight. What about the people in your life, Christian friends? What about your spouse and your friends, the rest of your family? Like God has raised up these attributes of Moses. Would the people around you use similar terminology to describe you? Come on, ask yourself, is that, is that the case? Would they say, yep, faithful in all areas of service? Ah, here's one. Would the people in your life say, that person is humble? Humble. Could that be said of us? So we could go down that street, but I think more critically, what you and I need to do is appreciate how important a role this poem plays in the whole of the rest of the Bible. Now listen very carefully. We need to appreciate how the New Testament authors, what they do is they walk back into the Old Testament. The New Testament authors come back into Numbers chapters, chapter 12. They take much of this poem, this 11-line poem, they take it, and what do they do? You know what they do, don't you? They ascribe this to a greater prophet. They ascribe some of the words, the terminology here to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You can see that, can you? I mean, you think about it. You were here last week. What did we see last week? You know, we're saying Moses is meek. Moses is great, are we? Remember last week, we still know that Moses failed in his work. You know, meek, maybe, of course. But Moses failed to mediate properly before God on behalf of the people. So what does God do? What do we know? God sends a new mediator. He sends his son. And I ask you, ah, how does the New Testament describe the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you remember the three titles? What of Jesus' character? What does the New Testament say of Jesus? Matthew tells us that he, our Lord, was supremely meek. Doesn't he? Not just gentle and lowly at points, but Jesus Christ gentle and lowly in heart. And I ask you, where do you see it? How do you see the humility of Jesus Christ? And you would say back to me, wouldn't you? In the fact that he too was completely silent before his accusers before the accusations. Who's Jesus? How is he described to you? What does the Apostle Paul say? Where Moses has seen the form of God but glimpsed it, Paul tells you that Jesus Christ actually is the form of God, the Son of God himself. Where Moses, you know, John will say, you know, Moses hears clearly the word of God. John will tell us Jesus Christ actually is the word of God. But is it not perhaps the third area that is most pertinent here? Do you remember the status 
And to see this, I would ask you to work with me here just for a moment. Would you look to your sheet and look to the very bottom of your order of service? I have printed out for you, recorded there for you, the words of the the New Testament book of Hebrews, speaking of our Savior, our Lord, our King. And look what it said. For Moses, yes, was loyal over God's house as a servant. Hebrews brings Christ into view and says, Jesus Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. I mean, do you not feel the weight of that? Do you not see how important that is? The one who intercedes for you this morning, the one who stands and works on your behalf in the heavenly realm, is the very owner of the house. He's the very ruler of the house. Christ Jesus is the heir of us, set to receive us an inheritance, his people, his church. You see, I'm sure, in Numbers 12, yes, we look at Moses and we, we analyze ourselves and think, are we meek, are we humble? But you see what Scripture is doing. The momentum brings you to Jesus Christ. And you see in him a mediator of a better covenant. You see one who is much greater, greater prophet than Moses. And you see in Jesus Christ this morning, the one who is truly worthy of all of your honor, all the glory. He alone is worthy of all of our praise. So we see a great sin. We see a greater prophet. And we close most briefly of all, we close with the greatest word. Are you with me this morning? Are you? It's cold and here that can be distracting in itself. Hopefully the people at home are, are, are with me just now. If you are, you'll see what we, where we come to next. You see the, the last scene. Do you appreciate the gravity of it? I mean, Miriam and Aaron grumbling, complaining, jealous, envious, and then God descends and he vindicates and describes Moses. What happens next? Do you feel the weight of it? judgment a punishment for the sin and i know i do i know the question that some of you are asking especially the women and the ladies and the girls in the congregation what are you asking verse 10 you may be asking hang on a minute why is it that it appears that only miriam is inflicted and judged and punished. Why is it only Miriam uh, is inflicted with illness here? Well, um, there's a couple of good answers, possibilities here. If you look at verse 1, you'll notice very, very unusually that Miriam is listed first. And most scholars would suggest that that indicates that that it was her idea, that she was perhaps the instigator of this jealousy or, or the complaints. So she's mentioned first, there's that. Or it could be that, now think about it properly, it could be that Aaron is not punished because as high priest, if he is inflicted with illness, what, what's that? that? That jeopardizes all of the spiritual life of the whole of the camp, that is a knock-on effect for all of the, the people of Israel. Either way, it isn't an example of misogyny of the Bible or the patriarchal system or 
right? It's not. And instead of who, I think you and I need to consider what happens here. Can I ask you to look at the end of verse 9, to look at the, the parts of this punishment and judgment? Like, do you see at the end of verse 9, there's an emphasis, quite an unusual emphasis, on the, the departure of God in judgment. Do you notice this? Like, God leaves. He abandons Miriam and Aaron in judgment. Then, then if you look at verse 10, what's the next step? So there's this departure, but there is this affliction. Miriam is cursed with a disease. Now, it's not just a disease. You notice what sort of disease it is? All of the background and numbers should be flooding over you just now. It's leprosy. It's a skin disease. Something that we have noted previously is a picture and a portrayal of death. Not just uncleanness, but death. You see, so there's departure, there's death. And you might say to me at this moment, yes, but Andy, God shows mercy to Miriam. Like Moses intercedes, right? And and God shows grace. But I would say back to you, but she's still, do you notice at the end, she's still sent out of the camp? Do you notice that she still bears, there's an emphasis on the text, she bears the shame of her sin. She's she's cut off, she's, she's let, she's, Pushed out of the camp. There is departure. There is this disease of death. There is disgrace. This is quite a punishment. Don't you agree? Quite a judgment. Now again, as we close, what what do we do with this? Well, I think, yeah, do you know what we've got to do? We've got to acknowledge that what we're seeing here is the seriousness of a sin that you and I take all too lightly. Come on. Envy? Again, like last week, this isn't mass murder. This is it. This isn't grand theft. This is coveting our neighbor, being envious. This isn't something that we often confess to God in prayer. Yet this is some, look at the punishment. I mean, this is something that is clearly serious in the sight of a holy God. But as we end, as we close, I think ultimately, you have to appreciate that you are shown in Numbers 12 something of what Jesus Christ has done for his people. You have to understand that here you are being shown something of what Christ Jesus endured as he, like Miriam, as he stood on that cross before God, faced with his Father, bearing the weight of his sin. Do you see it? The meek one. The most honorable one suffered. And, and how? What was the judgment upon Jesus Christ? You see, don't you, that unlike Miriam, who just appears as dead, for his church, the Lord Jesus Christ, and on that cross, he, he died. He went to his death, bearing the weight of our sin and our, our judgment, a true death. He died. What sort of death? Don't you see it in Miriam and Aaron? The Lord Jesus Christ, the judgment upon him on that cross, a, a departure. You know, the, the sense of a spiritual a abandonment, a spiritual leaving of his, of his father that leads to him crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then surely most supremely of all, if you think about the cross, that the Lord Jesus Christ in the darkness of Golgotha, he bears shame. And maybe we think about oh, being naked 
front of all of these people traveling in and out of Jerusalem, hanging there. The shame of it being spat on, receiving abuse and torture. Shame, yeah, but don't you see? Worse. True disgrace. The Holy One of Israel. True disgrace. As he is pushed out of the camp, taken away, forsaken, an outcast, cut off, the meek one, cut off. And there's part of us, isn't there, as a church, that we, we cry into that. We say, well, why? I mean, he is the honorable. He is the supremely humble one, the perfect sinless one. Why would that happen? But we know the answer. All for us. All for you, Christian in here. On one hand, all that right now, you can know a Moses-like relationship and intimacy with God. Christ punished by just now that you might have that access, a greater access than even Moses had. Christ Jesus punished. Why? What does Paul say? So that right now, with unveiled faces, we can, by the Holy Spirit, behold the glory of God. Christ died that you might have that privilege. On one hand, that is true. But on the next, what is to come? What is to come for us, the church of Jesus Christ? Our Lord, the meek one, was punished at Calvary. All that in the last reckoning of things, much more than Moses, with our eyes, we shall see our King and our Lord. Much, much greater, with more intimacy than Moses, we the church shall stand mouth to mouth. We shall stand face to face with the humble one, the meek one, our King. We shall see God. And with intimacy, with love, and in perfect harmony. I guess the last thing that remains is for me to ask, but you, do you know this Jesus? Do you know him? If not, surely your response to the gospel has to be the same response as Aaron. Did you notice what he does? He looks and he sees Miriam. He sees the punishment, he sees the judgment, he sees the sin, and he cries out to his mediator, he cries out, do not lay my sin upon me, do not punish me for my sin, count not my sins to me. That has to be your response to God this morning. Friend, will you not follow Aaron's lead? Will you not follow suit? Turn from your sin at this moment. Turn to the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to him in faith. And this morning, at long last, see by faith in Christ, see the very face of your God. Friends, let's bow and let's pray. Gracious Father, we confess that it is abundantly and evidently true that these people in the wilderness are a people like ourselves, that we too grumble and then grumble and then grumble again, and that we are envious of the people around us. We are so grateful to you that you have provided a mediator, 
one who intercedes, and one who has borne the guilt of our pride and borne the punishment for our envy. May it be that the name of Jesus Christ is praised. Amen.